I have a brand new guest on Church and Culture today. His name is Professor David Schindler, and his books are authored by D.C. Schindler. His father was a very well-known theologian and philosopher, D.L. Schindler. Those of you that have been reading in this area, I'm sure, know that by now. He is Professor of Metaphysics and Anthropology and at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. He uh, studied Notre Dame and liberal studies, took an MTS at John Paul II Institute, an MA in philosophy at Catholic University, and a Ph.D. there as well. His work is concerned, above all, with shedding light on contemporary cultural challenges and philosophical questions by drawing on the resources of the classical Christian tradition. And in my opinion, by the way, David Schindler is one of the very best Christian philosophers working today in the English language and probably in any language. His main historical areas are ancient Greek, especially Plato and Neoplatonism, German philosophy, especially Hegel and Heidegger, and Catholic philosophy, especially Aquinas and 20th century Thomism. He has taught 12 years at Villanova before returning to Washington to teach at the John Paul II Institute. He's published more than a dozen books, including a trilogy on the nature of freedom at the University of Notre Dame Press. And he's translated books, including one by our beloved Catholic novelist, George Bernanos. David, welcome to Church and Culture. Thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure. We're going to talk about beauty. And beauty is uh, one of my one of my favorite, but to me a very very important theme in philosophy and theology, and one that I've worked at quite a bit. But you come at it as both a t- someone who is grounded in Greek philosophy and medieval philosophy, but also in German idealism. In fact, you know you've written books about Schiller, Schelling, and and the whole crowd. But what I want to ask you to do for our listeners to begin with is how can beauty be treated philosophically? If you begin as a Thomist and you believe beauty is a transcendental property of being, uh, along with several other transcendental properties, how, how do you then understand beauty philosophically when you're coming at it from different points of view like the Kantian point of view, the German idealist, the Hegelian point of view, the Heideggerian point of view, is there any connection between their points of view and the sort of traditional Thomist and Neo-Thomist point of view? That's a, that's a really good question. I, <clears throat> uh, maybe I should start by um, uh, mentioning a name of a figure very important for me that I think provides... Uh, a helpful bridge between the Germans and um, medieval thought, and that's Hansers von Balthasar. Right. Wrote my um, dissertation on Balthasar's philosophy. He's he's obviously much better known as a theologian, but he wrote some really extraordinary things in philosophy, and <clears throat> he was steeped in in uh, German thought, but was very much a Catholic thinker and. He um, always pointed to Aquinas as representing the, the culmination of metaphysical thought in, uh, for, for the Christian tradition. And so um, uh, Aquinas was obviously central for him um, as, a, as, a, as a thinker and as a, as a Catholic theologian. Um, but he, he came to it from, uh, he had done his own dissertation in the, in the area of, of Germanistik, is what they call it. In, in Germany, um, he wrote. He wrote an early book on the German soul, right? That's right. That's right. That was his. That was from his dissertation, and just uh, a reading of all of the great uh, German literature from a from a kind of a, an eschatological perspective. So, I it, it seems to me that that he opens up one one of the um, the way that he defines beauty. I think it actually brings brings these um, traditions together already. Is um, what he presents as, as the classical definition, which is beauty is the splendor of form. Um, 
so it's it's got a twofold. Uh, well, that's right out of the Thomistic tradition, right there. There you go. Yeah, it, it is. And you know, Aquinas doesn't explicitly define beauty that way, but but that that's arguably um, a, 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 a kind of a boiling down to the essence of what. Aquinas no, he definitely Im- implies that in that direction is valid. Yes. Definitely. That's right. That's right. And and then and Balthazar uh, thinks through. Uh, how how we perceive that, um, and in doing so, he he draws on on things that connect with the Kantian tradition and um, the and and the German uh, philosophers. Let me let me inter- let me interrupt, please. We went from beauty as a transcendental property of being. To beauty as the splendor of form. Right, right. So we jump from being to form. Can you explain that? Oh, great, great. No, thank you. Yeah, well, well this is where the splendor comes in. At least this is how I read um, Balthazar and read Aquinas through through Balthazar. And I've, I, in discussion with Thomas, um, this seems to resonate generally with the uh, reception of Aquinas. If you, if you think of the, the, the light that shines through the form, in, in the perception of something that's beautiful, if you, if you see that as um, uh, the light of being, uh, that's uh, uh, Aquinas himself will will in a couple of places talk about being as something like a light. If you think of that as the light of being, then then that unites uh, this interpretation of of beauty with the transcendental property. So we, 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 we have a, uh, well, an appearance, a form that appears, but it's the light of being that is being communicated through that form. That's connected to order. That's right. That's and right. unity. Yeah. The, 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 for Balthazar, the form part is what's connected to order. And then the light part is what um, transports us in and through the order to what lies beyond. So if we think of, of form connected to, if we want to translate this into metaphysics, if we think of, uh, the form is connected to essence, and then um, think of the, the, the fundamental structure of things as uh, essence and existence, this, this uh, what, what Aquinas calls the real distinction between essence and existence, there's, a, there's a, um, an analogy between that metaphysical distinction, essence and existence, and the interpretation of beauty as form and splendor. You see, um, they, uh, they, they, they sort of line up, you might say, to put it. Okay, that, that's really helping me, David. Um, okay. So, in von Balthasar, his, the way he looks at, say, Revelation history... And he sees it un, uh, partially under the aegis of aesthesis of perception, right? Yeah, yeah. And the splendor of the form of Christ is what sort of stands at the heart of his project. Is that correct? That's that's absolutely right. Yes. And that, but that form can be, as it were, unpacked. Throughout yeah. his aesthetics, yeah, you know, so he thinks that beauty has been neglected. That we tend to think of um, truth and goodness, especially moral goodness, as the serious dimensions of of uh, the transcendentals, whereas beauty seems to be just decoration. Um, but but Balthazar uh, insists that um, I mean, he makes some very radical claims. One is that. If we lose, if we we trivialize beauty, eventually we're also going to lose truth and goodness. That they're going to be trivialized as well. He says we'll and, be unable to pray, and then we'll eventually be unable to pray. That's exactly or right. even love. Right. Uh, that yeah. famous quote. By the way, I was in the room with Erasmus when he got von Balthasar's permission to translate the first volume <laughs> oh, wow. of Type. Wow. Okay. He and I were graduate students together at Emory when that happened. Okay. Oh, I had no idea. That's that's uh, 
that's quite a story. Erasmo is a, is an extraordinary person and really oh, he's, a great yeah, translator. I mean, he he dedicated one of his von Balthasar translations to me, the one on threefold garden garland. Oh, oh my goodness! Oh, yeah. well, that's, and, that's uh, quite an honor. But I digress. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, I have a lot of personal investment okay. in von Balthasar, but but a whole topic of beauty. My conversions book really is a story of how beauty brought me into the church. Yeah, you know, not interpreting the Bible, not <laughs> yeah. you know, not yeah. none of that, just right. plain old solid beauty. Well. I mean, I think, uh, you know, two things to say about that. First, I, I think you could probably make a, a pretty strong argument that it's always beauty. That, uh-huh. com- that is what converts people. That even if you're if finally convinced by an argument or something, there's something about the beauty of it that overwhelms you eventually. Or if you if you meet a person that impresses you and changes right. your life. It's like Jesus, person, absolutely, yeah. Or you know that you know my wife started her journey when she went into Notre Dame when she was in Paris in college. Wow, yeah. And then eventually she you know she converted before we got married, but that was so many people yeah. have just the way you you put it either yeah. the presence of something sublime, right, or the presence of somebody with. Some sort of glow, some sort of holiness. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's nice that you mentioned Notre Dame for your wife. That's where the famous. I, I actually have not seen this, but apparently there's a uh, on this on one of the stones in the floor in Notre Dame. There's a a, a phrase that says "Ici se convertit Paul Claudel." Here is where oh, Paul really? Claudel was converted, and he was just walking around on a Christmas Eve, if I recall the story correctly, um, uh, with his soul in turmoil and uh, heard something going on in the cathedral and uh, Mass was being sung and the beauty of it just overwhelmed him. And from that moment on, he was devoted to the Church. It was really a radical... The, uh, and the it was the beauty of, of it. The group of Frenchmen who brought me into the church were Maritain, Gilson, mm. Claudel, Julian Green, wow. Charles Peggy, oh. uh, yeah. and so, yeah. I mean, the whole group. Yeah, uh, no, and I have a, and I have a really and special love. Yeah, I have a really special love for, for, um, for Peggy, I have to say. But, <clears throat> you but know, let's, let's go back to what... Once, okay, von Balthasar represents a kind of marriage of these traditions. Mm-hmm. But if you go out to German idealists themselves, like Hegel, like Schelling, like Schiller, mm-hmm. even Fichte, Goethe, yeah. uh, are they on the same page as as Thomism, so to speak? Right. Um, no, no, certainly not. But um, what... Uh, before addressing that specific question, I, I, I think it's worth pointing out. It's, it's interesting you, you mentioned Maritain. And, um, beauty seems to be the place where um, uh, the, the, the Balthazarians, if, if you will, those who love Balthazar's theology and the Thomists really come, can come together. It seems to be yes. one of the most print, uh, fruitful, potentially fruitful points of contact. Now, yes. with regard to, to these other thinkers that you mentioned, um, a lot of work would need to be done. I think um, I think there, the, uh, Kant. Um, to start with him, I, Kant was all has always been. You know, I, I joke with students, um, kind of an arch enemy for me. There's, there's, he sort of represents so many things that I um, uh, that I spend my time thinking about to correct or respond to. But I have to say that the one thing in Kant that I that I find really compelling, even though I would also want to, to qualify it in all kinds of ways, right. is, is his interpretation of, of beauty. There, I think there was a, a real genius in his uh, in his aesthetics and, and some of the most interesting German philosophers, if they rejected other parts of Kant's philosophy, they... they um, they really uh, began with his aesthetics as and tried to rethink 
um, other parts of his thought on the basis of his aesthetics in a way that Kant himself wouldn't have done. And those those people, I think, um, so Schelling and Hegel and Schiller too. Um, I uh, I think Schiller is 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 more potentially fruitful than um, he's often given credit for. I, I think they they develop ideas that can be connected to this um, classical uh, Christian tradition. Two two um, things, even David. though it's not obvious on the surface. Two things I've often heard. And I've read the Critique of Judgment a number of times to try to figure this out. That in the third critique, the one on beauty, that he reconnected with the thing in itself. Yeah. And is there any truth to that? You know, see, that's exactly the point that I had in mind. He himself didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> okay, that's it's, you know, but it, but I think he opened the doorway to doing that because what, when you see what he's doing. Um, suddenly you think, oh, okay, we've we've recovered this whole realm that he had uh, separated off. The, pers- the the truly perceptible. I mean, yeah, right. Okay. Um, you know, with his his idea of an aesthetic idea, this kind of saturated um, uh, perception of the imagination that 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 um, is is filled with an infinite meaning. The problem is that Kant, whenever he would get carried away with those things, would then um, uh, take away just what he had given uh, right. later, and said, he had to uh, remain in his cage. Right, right. He would he would step back and he would say, "This is all just a regulative idea. This is all just a conceptual imposition." Effectively, um, it's not really this way. Uh, and you know, I think he intuited. Um, you know, if one can speak so sort of facilely about about these complex thinkers. I'm a Maritanian. You can say intuit okay. all you want. <laughs> I, you know, I think that, that he intuited that if he actually um, followed the path that was opened up, he'd actually have to rethink his first two critiques pretty substantially. Wow. But, and you know... So I, I think he just was committed to... Uh, avoiding doing that um, in a way then that some of his followers weren't. They were they were able to to go in a much more I think potentially fruitful direction. Well, two things. Uh, I often when I read the German idealists on beauty, I'm always running into the word freedom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you have you finished the third volume of the trilogy yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, okay, uh, but you've got the ter- first two volumes out there. Yes, yeah. So is it, would the it be helpful one to... almost a, killed me, so I have to take a little break. <laughs> they're big books. They're big, they're big, big books. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, which I, which I plan on delving into. And I, my question is, when you start looking at these groups from, say, Kant to Hegel, or even to Heidegger, yeah. and you see freedom as some as as a um, category closely associated with beauty yeah why is that right right really good question and that's an important question um schiller is the person to um respond to that one and i think he gives an interpretation again this is one of these things i think it opens up a door that could have been fruitful but but has not been properly tapped, and I think a good bit of the um, association in German philosophy between freedom and beauty was, was problematic, but I think in Schiller it's much more interesting. So what, Schil- what Schiller says is that, uh, in fact, this is part of his definition of beauty, and it's really a provocative one. Um, beauty is the appearance of freedom, and what, and what he means by that is, um, yeah, it's a bit complex, um, he, he calls it, in another place, form overcoming form. And what he means by that is um, uh, a kind of recapitulation of order at a higher level. Now, that's very abstractly put. But, um, uh, but it like, does go back to the issue of order and form. Yes. Right. And this is why, this is why it's hard for us to understand... The connection between freedom and beauty, because we're, we have incredible difficulty getting beyond a notion of freedom uh, as arbitrary choice. License. 
That's right. License and, and disorder, sort of um, uh, lack of restraint, a, a kind of loosening of, of order and, and uh, indeterminacy in possibility and potentiality, those kinds of things we think are essential to uh, the meaning of freedom. But uh, Schiller tries to rethink the meaning of freedom, I think, in a, in a, in a really compelling way. This, this, this is so different, it requires some time to meditate on it. And is let it, it really is he going in, back toward a kind of determinant telos or teleological explanation of beauty? Uh, I, I missed the first part of what you said there. Is he trying to reintroduce a telos, the end? Yes, yes, but it would be something, if you wanted to connect this with a Thomist insight, it would be something like um, Eve Simone's notion of freedom as supra-determinacy as right. opposed to indeterminacy. And this is, it's its almost, it's not like, it's not a disorder, it's a superabundance of order. And that's actually, um, that's a good, <laughs> I like that formulation, that hadn't occurred to me before. But I think that actually captures what Schiller means by beauty as being the appearance of freedom it's the superabundance of order. It's an order that, um, uh, in a way, um, exceeds the limits that we w- would put on it, but exceeds those limits precisely as a higher level order. It's not disorder. It's not. It's not a negation or a destructive force. It's a. It's a. Um, it's a deep internalizing of teleology, if you want to use that language. Um, Wait, so you get you, so Schiller. Freedom here is not so much a moral category as it is a kind of spiritual one in the sense of of an orientation toward the world. Yes, yes, uh, uh, and a very distinctive one, a spiritual one and an aesthetic one. It's an orientation towards the world. Um, here, here we go. Here's here's a here's a here's a way to describe it. Uh, uh, when uh, a when a kind of an order or a goal is extrinsically imposed on someone, so so someone is a slave, you know, is subordinate to a commander who imposes this order, and and the person has to respond in a way that uh, he has to force himself to conform. There's a certain um, um, uh, violence that's done, and the the uh, kind of uh, uh, Effort that's required that can be that can be um, painful. Uh, for for Schiller, um, we see that that the the the, the um, manner of the person who's responding in this way to an extrinsic form and and a telos, you might say, uh, that's being imposed from the outside. You see that in this kind of an ugly. Servitude right. and and a kind of there's there's a certain um, uh, f- um, uh, disjointedness in the behavior. Right. Contrast that with someone who takes in that command and loves it and and uh, internalizes it so deeply that that person can't you know wants to to carry out this order more than anything in the world. So that, that there's. There's a telos, you see, but it's it's been it's become um, co- you know it coincides perfectly with the will of the person. And Schiller would say that that person is able then to um, fulfill the goal gracefully. Right. Um, uh, the the very constraints are actually uh, embraced um, as an occasion to manifest even greater beauty. That's what. That's what freedom is, this, this perfect in, 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 uh, interiorizing of order. Um, and you see, it's, that's why it's not a disorder, but it's also not, there's nothing mechanical about it. or um, uh, it's, it's order that springs from the center of a being. Rather and you than, can see why the word beauty could be associated with that. Absolutely. So there you go. And that's, that's, the, we, we, we see that as beautiful. This is why... You know, um, seeing a, a bird fly, uh, the, the the constraints that its nature places on it um, uh, are actually 
become instruments of its self-expression. They, be, they, 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 um, these are not extrinsically imposed limits, but they're sort of occasions for, uh, for grace. And that this is why yes. it, we see the bird flying, floating in the air as if effortlessly. Um, that's, that's an expression of beauty. And we, and, you know, then there are analogies in music and in dance and in, and in painting. Um, I think of marriage. And marriage. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how would you work that out? How would you yeah, call that out? Well, we're going to take a short break. Okay. I'm talking with David C. Schindler, who is a professor of metaphysics and anthropology at the John Paul II Institute, talking about beauty. And we'll be right back. I am back with David C. Schindler, professor of metaphysics and anthropology at the John Paul II Institute, author of many books. His dissertation on Balthazar, as we just heard, but has also written a two volumes, the first two volumes of a trilogy on freedom published by University of Notre Dame Press. And we're talking about beauty. It's something we both think is we're both being in the Thomistic and Balthazarian sort of legacy is very important. And so, David, I have to sort of ask you the, the, the sort of elephant in the room question. And that is when we're learning from German idealists such as Schiller and, of course, all that culminating in Hegel and then passing through into Heidegger. Um, do we still have a transcendent God by the time we get to Hegel? Yeah. Well, this is, uh, as they say, where it all breaks down. Um, I, I, I think that uh, there there was profound insight, especially in, in, in Hegel, um, his recognition that what might seem like obscure... Uh, Doctrines belonging to um, arcane mysteries of the church, the Trinity and ecclesiology and sacramental theology, he actually recognized that all of those have um, philosophical implications. And I think that is uh, an insight that we ought never to lose hold of. The problem you find that in those early theological writings. Well, yes, yes, but not only. I think it, it. I think right, especially there, and that's where there, that that's. I mean, and you see that the theological questions were were really basic for him, fundamental, sort of the original sorts of things. The problem with Hegel is that in the end, um, the uh, these theological mysteries, in a way, are exhausted by their philosophical implications. So. In other words, um, what what philosophy is able to get out of them is all that they're worth in the end. And so, so on the one hand, it's a it's a wonderful insight, um, uh, but uh, there's you know in the long run it becomes quite quite reductive. And um, the mystery I mean, is gets, is gets Cornelio Fabro right about Hegel that he did immunitize God? I think he is right about that. And uh, another uh, thinker that I, uh, contemporary, that I hold in great estimation, um, William Desmond, the Irish Catholic philosopher. Oh, yeah. He right. he spent a good part of his early life as a as a, a convinced Hegelian, and he still is a great scholar of Hegel, but he came to that judgment, too, that in the end um, he calls uh, Hegel's God uh, a counterfeit double. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he says all sorts of things that sound like orthodox ideas, but he's actually giving them a reinterpretation that that immunitizes, completely immunitizes their meaning. Which, which of but course, then means God is is becoming in history, which leads yeah. to the whole Marxist foundation. That's right. That's right. That's right. But the the thing that the, the thing is um, uh, the this relationship of God to the world that Hegel wanted to give more weight than he thought people like Schleiermacher. I mean, he, he was critical of a certain kind of subjectivizing of the faith. Um, 
this this objective presence of God in the world is precisely where beauty lies, um, according to this German tradition. It's 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 beauty really is the expression of of God's presence in the world. This is the function that it also plays for Balthazar. Now, the problem is so that that insight I think is is critical. It's worthy. It's worthy. Yeah. Yeah, but but then the problem for Hegel is that. God's presence in the world sort of cashes out in the, the historical implications so that you no longer need a transcendent God. And that's, you know, that's the tragedy of, of, of Hegel's thought. But you, but you have the beauty of God's presence in the world even if he's not out of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's this is where Balthazar's um, um, famous distinction between beauty and glory um, uh, is is important that um, they're deeply connected to each other, but glory is is and and you might say one of the, the sort of uh, shorthand criticisms of Hegel is that he doesn't see any distinction between those at all. Right. And and the difference is that um, beauty would be the sort of natural um, human imminent uh, expression of the presence of God and glory is the presence of God that that um, uh, prioritizes his uh, transcendence. His well, it's the superabundance you talked about. Yeah. yeah. In out of Eve Simone, right? That's right. That's right. And if you see if you see beauty and glory as intrinsically related, then you you recognize the superabundance even in beauty. Beauty becomes um, uh, it, it helps. Avoiding beauty's collapse into the the, the bourgeois sort of pleasant, <laughs> right? But right. then you know, in in terms of um, history of aesthetics, gets rejected in postmodern, uh, you know, for oh, the sake no. of the postmodern sublime. Isn't that Hegel? Isn't that Heidegger's fault? Uh, how would you? Yeah, I I think I know what you mean. I think I agree with you. But how would you? What do you? How would well, you I mean, he exactly. He talked about, you know, he began with his study of Scotus, medieval philosopher, but he, as he matured in his thought, didn't he basically reject both classical and medieval metaphysics and say that we have forgotten being because we have basically uh, tried to trap being in some sort of rational system. And we have to reconnect with being through, well, I guess I would say the poetic. Right, right. I mean, is that too far off? No, no, no. That's exactly, and it's it's so it's so interesting the connection between this and the the, the line that we've been discussing. Um, uh, Balthazar, I think, from a Balthazarian perspective, you could say. So, so I mentioned earlier, for Balthazar, beauty is the unity of the good, the good and the true, and it 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 helps each of those be properly what it is. Um, I think one of the ways to um, criticize uh, Heidegger's perspective is, is along the lines that you just laid out there, that he aestheticizes truth, that um, in, in a certain sense he collapses beauty and truth together, so that truth no longer, um, so that, that you know that's expressed in this this um, sort of allergy he has for anything rational, and for an idea that um, the true has something to do with being correct and so forth. He wants to downplay all that, but but um, that's very different from Balthazar's perspective. Balthazar wants to foreground beauty um, in the way that Heidegger does, but not in a way that eclipses truth. Or, or it rules out metaphysics, and that, that rules out metaphysics. You know, in Heidegger, you also lose moral seriousness. Um, in a way, it all becomes aesthetic for him, arguably, um, and merely aesthetic. I guess you should say. Whereas Balthazar wants to deepen our love of the beautiful, but in a way that that intensifies the seriousness of moral questions, and and in a way. Um, uh, anchors uh, the significance of the truth and truth. Um, so, and that, this is why this is why I think 
well, you know, Balthazar uh, is helps connect us with the Thomas tradition from the, from the side yeah. of these German uh, concerns. So, David, let me let me ask you this question. Um, when I was active teaching in Catholic philosophy, um, I could never understand why Catholic philosophers fell for Heidegger. I just couldn't understand it. And to a certain extent, I thought the same thing about Hegel, although, as you have you said, there are virtues in Hegel that are obvious. But with Heidegger and the total rejection of scholastic metaphysics, and like you say, the aestheticizing of truth, why did so many Catholic philosophers... Who, first of all, have to believe in the existence of ultimate truth, you know, uh, that's outside of a, something we discover, not create. Um, why they fall for that? Um, I think if I had to, if I had to uh, identify, I mean, who knows in, in, in different cases, but you know, it, it is true. It seems like the, the people that were at the forefront of the um, reception of Heidegger in the United States were often were often Catholic thinkers, William Richardson, for instance, or, or right. uh, Jack Caputo. But but um, if I had to put if I had to guess if what what motive what motivated what motivated them, and in a certain sense, I think this is also uh, why um, he's been interesting for me too. Is that that Heidegger uh, did quite a bit to at least try to recover a sense of the sacred. Um, that uh, did he, he wanted, do that deliberately, or was that an after you know, effect? He, I no, that he did it. I think he did do it deliberately, but he did it in a way that's you know. So, so here, I mean, the thing is, it, it was perverse from the beginning, to be honest, because he thought that in a way, you know, and this there's a there's a complex history here. Um, uh, the question is, you know, is Christianity responsible for disenchanting the cosmos? And I think there there are a lot of people that would say yes, because of the revelation of God in Christ, we recognize that um, uh, the world is not divine. Um, now, the problem is, it seems to me that that's that's too facilely put and that's oh, too yeah. one sided. Um, Absolutely. That a proper Christian metaphysics uh, and the notion of God as Creator and uh, the the kinds of I mean you know the, the Summa is filled with uh, and not only the Summa I, you know um, Dionysius the Areopagite is one of my favorite authors mm-hmm. uh, on these kinds of questions you know the, the world is filled with God's presence and that affirmation doesn't. Eclipse in the least. In fact, it's an implication of the incarnation. Well, Maritain, don't you think he preserves the sacred? Oh, I think so. So I think the great Catholic thinkers do this, and and that, that's why that's why there's always an antidote to, to Heidegger. So his 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 problem was that he he had this deep desire, I think, a genuine desire to recover a sense of the sacred, but he he blamed Christianity in large part for its loss, and so the kind of um, language uh, and, and patterns of thought that he introduced to recover the sacred were much more pagan and sort of pre-Christian, but, you know, but, hence the, the, the fascination with the early Greek thinkers. But didn't the kind of Thomism he was taught yeah. at the turn of the century in Germany, wasn't that the manual very rigid, sure. rationalistic form of Thomism that really was, uh, <laughs> I say, you have disenchanted, completely sure. disenchanted Thomism. Right, and that, that's why that's why that narrative is not simply false. The Christianity, I mean, the, the, there is a there's uh, both a positive truth to the. Um, distinction between God and the world that Christianity clarified with respect to sort of pagan religion, um, and then there's the 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 um, sinful responsibility for having, in a way, um, uh, rationalized things or promoted ways of thinking that 
in a way, trivialize the, the significance mm-hmm. of the world. So Christianity has some responsibility for that. But, you know, with, with, with Heidegger, he's complicated. Um, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, it was uh, Scotus, or, or as it turned out, it was um, um, falsely attributed to Scotus, the writing that he wrote about in the beginning, but it was essentially a kind of Scotistic metaphysics. Rather than a deep Catholic, uh, right. Thomistic metaphysics, but even that, I don't think, gets him off the hook entirely. There's a, there's an interesting um, relationship. I don't know if you've uh, heard much about this um, uh, this relation between Heidegger and Gustav Sievert, who was a um, a German Thomist that was very influential. On no, I have Balthus, not heard about this. He was a was a, an incredibly uh, gifted thinker, philosopher, and very, very little... Say his last name again, David. Sievert. Sievert uh, in, in German. That's S-I-E-W-E-R-T-H. Gustav Sievert. And he, he was a, a, a student of Heidegger's in the very, very early years, sat in some seminars, but um, Heidegger apparently wrote in a letter that Sievert was was one of the only people alive in Germany that he had something to learn from. Really? Uh, that he, he he greatly estimated Sievert's thought. Now, Sievert wanted to connect the things that Heidegger was doing with Aquinas, but Heidegger himself rejected it. And it's amazing when Sievert was finishing his studies and wanted to enter the academic world, this is right in the beginning of the Nazi um, right, time. Right, the 30s, 20s and 30s. Was the rector, exactly. Um, uh, Heidegger uh, blacklisted Sievert. No. And um, he made, made he ensured that Sievert would not get an academic position because he thought his thought was too religious, too theological. So, and I, what, I, what was it, what happened to Sievert the rest, you know, yeah, as he so grew he ended up, he ended up, uh, uh, being becoming a traveling salesman, um, Lord. even even though he, for 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 many years, even though he c- continued to write some extraordinary books, eventually um, he was brought on at a, at a after World War II at a pedago- uh, pet, pedagogical Hochschule they call him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so he he was given an academic position towards the end of his life, and then he ended up. Uh, dying, dying young. Um, they should have given him Heidegger's chair at Marburg. <laughs> they, they should have. And I mean, you know, it's it's amazing. I mean, you you see that the uh, the the problem that there's an ethical problem with Heidegger. You know, and he both admires this thinker and uh, ensures that he not get an academic position or something. You know, there Heidegger. There are other instances of that with his relationship to Husserl, his relationship to Einstein. You know, he was a problematic um, human being. But for all of that, I have to say, I I, I, I still find it um, illuminating to read him. I, th- I think that the, there was d- deep insight um, that one can dig out of these these uh, problematic ideas. Well, you can do that because your foundation is secure in von Balthasar, Aquinas, yeah. Plato, Aristotle. You're, you can go over there, and you're not going to get hooked. You're not going to. You're not going right. to take the injection. Right. No, and that's that's a problem. If you start with Heidegger, you never you never get out of that shadow. Um, I don't think you can start with him. Beauty, in it, he does stand for the power of beauty, the meta, the metaphysical power, even though he directs metaphysics, mm-hmm. because. He does want to overcome the forgetfulness of being. Yes. And that's one reason why he promotes poetry. Right. Trockel, Ceylon, etc. Right. And so there is this side of him that I, I myself, I mean, that's what got me interested in him. The fact that he was, was reading poetry as a philosopher and recommending that we read it as philosophers. In a really remarkable way, too. Um, a, just a genial way. His reading of Hilderlin, Friedrich Hilderlin, is really unparalleled, I think. 
The uh, so I want to. We got about ten minutes left. I want to come back to the basis of this conversation, and that is beauty. Our listeners want to understand beauty, how it plays a role philosophically, how it plays a role theologically. We began by seeing how von Balthasar took the best of the Thomistic and the best of the German idealist traditions and weld them together in his definition definition of beauty as the splendor of form. And But in Balthasar, and the reason why we both have this mountain of books on our walls by von Balthasar, <laughs> uh, is that beauty is doing in von Balthasar what we experience it doing in our lives as Christians, drawing us to God, drawing us to the good, drawing us to the the beautiful is found where we find virtue, where we find insight, use Lonergan's phrase, uh, even when beauty is found in the context of something that is undesirable, we still can glean uh, a luminosity there that teaches us. Right. Right, it's Benedict XVI. Uh, uh, he's got a beautiful reflection on the beauty of the crucified Christ, um, which, of course, is you know, an image of, of horror in, in, a, in a profound sense, but we, we can see, the, see it as beautiful when we, and this is where the, the sort of splendor form idea of Balthazar. The Christ form. Yeah, Christ form. We see that there's a, there's a light that's shining through this, this broken form, which is the light of God's absolute love. And, and that is an overwhelming beauty. This is where the, the, the word glory then emerges beyond even beauty, um, that, that, confirms, you might say, the goodness of creation, of having created the world, even in spite of the mess we have made of it. Uh, the final word is an absolute yes to it in this, in this sacrificial act of redemption. So it's, it's, in the, before, you know, the, it's, um, uh, before we, or spell out the, the doctrines, and before we we think of the, the 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 virtues that are taught, we we receive it as a glorious expression of God, of who God is, and and um, God's own affirmation of the world. That's that's first. It, it, and it like you say, we there. receive its reception. That's right. That's right. And and it's it's. First, receiving that we are loved in this way, that we then are liberated to, to, to love ourselves, and we're also freed to think about the meaning of the of, of you know what it means and what are its implications, so that, that both our our moral life and our intellectual life get get set in motion. Well, you translated. Von Balthasar's Love Alone, if I recall it, it had already been translated once. Am I wrong? No, that's right. That's right. I, I got a call early on after finishing my uh, dissertation uh, from Ignatius Press, and that there were some complaints about the original translation, which was beautiful, but there was a, a concern that it was um, a little too free, and so they asked me to... Ah try to give a more a, a more sober uh, well, I'll have to read that. direct translation. So I, I, I still appreciate the original translation myself. Um, but, uh, you know, first for scholarly purposes, something a little more literal, if you want to use that language. Was, was I still think, more. you know, one of the books that converted me was Joseph Pieper's book about, on, about love. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing... I wanted to tell you this story real quick. Um, I was uh, my first year as a teacher at Mercer University, Atlanta, and it was spring, and I went out. I took a copy of the Summa, the Thomas Gilby paperback, volume one, right, 
on the existence of God. Right. And I went out and I was reading under Bird, bird Feeder. And uh, I started reading the question on whether, whether everything God made is good. And it gets down to this section of whether Satan is good since God made him. And I read, yes, even Satan is good. And at that moment, birds started singing in the tree. And as I read, the words of Aquinas and the song of the bird joined together in my head. And I got lost, sort of lost. Yeah. And that's the moment I decided to become Catholic. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really the something. moment. That's really something. Well, I thought, that well, if Satan can to... be good, I can be... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. There's hope for me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that interesting that it was simultaneously an insight in the beauty of the of the bird song that those... Oh, those were together. That's really something. I was very blessed, very blessed. There's other stories I could tell you sometime, but um, David C. Schindler, I we're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, you've done a magnificent job of fielding all these sort of off the wall questions that I've that I've saved it's been up a real pleasure for you. Talking to you too. And uh, if somebody wanted to read a book of yours, which one would you recommend that they begin with? Oh, you know, it depends on what their interests are. Um, my, my, the one that I is closest to, to my heart, if I if I may put it that way, is my book on Plato's Republic. Um, oh, Plato's Critique of Impure Reason. I have a, I have a special attachment to that one. But if if uh, if a person's not interested in philosophy, what about if they're interested in politics? Right, politics. If they're interested in politics, you know, um, the politics of the real, or maybe freedom from reality. Well, you but know I, what I'd like to do, David, is to for me to read one of these books and then have you back on the show. Would you do that? I would love it. I would. I really enjoyed this deal, and I would be happy oh. to continue. I feel like we're just. We're just sort of cracking the surface. We are. We are. uh, We could talk about for hours. Long way to go. (laughs) David Chandler, thank you for being a guest on Church and Culture. Thanks for having me. And to all of you who are listening, I'll be back with a wonderful guest at this time and this day next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.